0: That's org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Bonnie Plants. BonniePlants.com I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn.
1: Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palacio on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And today we're going to be talking about... Cuba, or Cuba. Cuba, it, it is so much in the news now as relations are unfreezing and thawing, slowly. I guess you could say, slowly, <laughs> right? And uh, there's so much for us to discover and travel restrictions are being lifted and as well as many of the embargoes. And I think people are more and more curious about Cuba, and of course for me, that means Cuban cuisine, when we think of cuba and cuban cuisine i know people usually think of fried plantains black bean soup uh yes a cuban sandwich of course and um and basically anything you've read in the news or seen pictures of which is unfortunately you know people kind of sitting in the street strumming guitars enjoying life but um not not eating perhaps as plentiful as as they once did. And so much of the Cuban cuisine is being reproduced from memory by people who left their home. Someone who took a trip back to Cuba to try to put this together and is of cuban descent is anna sophia palais and she has written along with um ellen silverman who was a wonderful photographer her poignant pictures really paint uh, a true representation i think she wrote a book called the cuban table and she has has delved into a lot of the history of cuban cuisine and i welcome here welcome anna
2: It's it's wonderful to be here.
1: Uh, So you have always been interested in the food, and you've had a blog for a long time called Mm -hmm. Hungry Sophia. Um, And your family, um, you learned to cook from your family. But that was an interesting trek in itself. So can you tell me a little bit about your background? Well, um, I grew up in Miami. I was
2: born... That's little Cuba, right? It's (laughs) northern Havana, as we call it. Um, I grew up in a Cuban family... um, and that was something that we always did together. My grandparents came um, to the United States in the early '60s, and they—they they were very busy in Cuba. They had—they both had careers, and they learned to cook. You know, as—as.
1: As recent exiles in the united states so they had servants cooking from that for them at home they Cuba, had they right? had
2: help at home yeah. they had a large family that would gather together for these you know very elaborate lunches so they were they, they they weren't part of the process of of cooking at home until they got here and then they were struggling a little bit um as as you know it's very difficult when you first arrive to a new country and you're learning a new language everything that that entire process. So, they learned to cook and neighbor saw that they were they were flailing a little bit and she mm-hmm. decided to teach them, you know, lend them a hand and she taught them to cook. Cuban food is what they what they what they were taught. And so they it was a, it was something that they came to late in life and it was something that they they fell in love with. And I think I was the beneficiary of that that enthusiasm that they had for it. So I was kind of you know I was had the the best view. I had their the little bench that they would set up for me in the kitchen so I got to see <laughs> them cook every day and go to the markets with my grandfather and and come back home and watch my grandmother Make these wonderful desserts, and so it was really something that you know was part of my everyday. I spent a lot of time with them. I love being being in their home, so I think that was my
1: first, my impression of of Cuban food was was from was through them. Well, and you mentioned that they were taught by friends and neighbors and and other relatives, um, everybody trying to recapture their memories uh, and the flavors um and and the foods that they left because yes. they they left their home i would imagine that that many of the ingredients were not available to them in the 60s when they got here
2: i do, i think that's something that i took for granted that there was something that was always available to them and when I when I was researching the book and I was speaking to different, you know, providers in, in Florida, they said, No, that didn't happen. We didn't have a maze until the seventies. Like they would they would they would they could pinpoint when certain products that I always thought of as tropical, so it made sense that they would grow in Florida the same as they, they would in Cuba, that there was actually just as my family came and immigrated, the the fruit came with them and the vegetables (laughs) and the things that they had to grow and and this demand, this new market that they created in South Florida. A lot of these products were introduced later. And I think their excitement for them, I thought I confused it with just, you know, I have to try a Saabolta and it's wonderful and it's amazing and you're going to love it. But it was really they were just dis- they were rediscovering it at the same time. So to me, that was very poignant because I understood a little bit more about why why it was
1: so so special and so important for them to share these things with me. Well, and it's interesting because so many of our memories are shaped by cooking with our families or uh, memories can be can be stimulated by a certain smell or, or mm-hmm. a taste of a of an, an old flavor that will um, spark a memory in, in people. Um, and the Cuban cuisine, I, when you I mean, so so you did all this cooking and you've been writing this wonderful blog and you've been rediscovering the flavors, then you decided to research it. I mean big time, and you went back to Cuba. Tell me what what did you find when you arrived?
2: This was my second trip back to
1: Cuba. And so I, the first time I had been was in 2000
2: and this last time was in, in 2013. And it was a bit of a shock because when I first was the, when I was first there in 2000, they would reference, uh, they would reference things that I was used to having that to me were part of everyday Cuban cuisine, what you would have with your family, what would be a weeknight meal. It was something that was very much part of what, what, we, what, what I thought of as Cuban food. This last time that I went back in 2013, there was, there were so many things that had I had realized had fallen out of memory in such a short period. Um, the first time I was there, it was shortly after the special period, which was when the subsidies were pulled from mm-hmm. by the Soviet Union. So Cuba went into a very, very steep economic crisis. They would reference a lot of things that they maybe hadn't had in a couple of years. But there was always the sense of like it's going to come back or it was for, for, for just for a short time. And when I was speaking to chefs or speaking to people who worked in Paladares, they would tell me about younger, younger people who were training or who were working in their restaurants that would ask them to show them things that they had never in their lifetime had, 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 had.
1: And they were that was born into this, this, they, they didn't life of know, scarcity, huh?
2: they didn't know any differently. They didn't know differently. And it was, it was interesting because one of the questions that I asked every subject that I had, and that was in New York, Miami. Wherever or in Cuba was, you know, what what kind of dishes do you remember that you don't have anymore? Um, when I would ask this question in Miami, it was always something that was you know, maybe b- very baroque a very, very rich dessert that tastes change. We, we don't have quite as much of a, a sweet tooth as, as, as we did. You adapt a little bit or or things that were very labor intensive that would take was part of how you lived where you had a lot of hands in the kitchen. So it was the entire family wasn't there. And now we live in smaller, smaller configurations. So it was, it made sense why these things were no longer being made like escabeche. The You know, that maybe it was a process that was a little bit, um, you know, something that had fallen out of a general use. When I asked this question in Cuba, they said things like, ropa vieja, anything that, any kind of beef-based um, dishes were, were very difficult. No beef. No, there's no, there's no yeah. beef. Right. So it was, you know, frituras de bacalao, which are just, for us, are just very kind of general street food that you would have in any cafeteria, any restaurant in Miami, you could just have it on the go. And any anything with fish was very it was very hard for them to find. So these things that were just every day, I realized that those were the things that were difficult to for them to have and they just they fell out not just of not just of you know being able to have them but just being them having them be part of your 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 diet and what you think of as this this cultural output that you have this shared cuisine that you all that you all know what you all know of as cuban
1: food uh, so for the past 50 years basically their cuisine was one of survival you
2: know? it was one of survival it was one of of improvisation mm-hmm. and a lot of substitutions and adaptation you know, <laughs> adaptation um, and I think one of the things that I found was that they were people that were holding on, and people who did remember, like I did, cooking with their their grandparents and the things that they could make. So they were as invested as I was in. You know, saying, "I you know I know this recipe. I'm not able to make it, but I remembered, and this is something that my family did." So they would they would hold on to it in the same way for different reasons. For okay. me, it was you know trying to hold on to what i knew of from my family when in a, in a multicultural environment and when you leave your house it's a very different you know your your what you live in your home is not reflected in the in the in the outside world so you hold on to what you what you love and what you grew up with for them it was wanting to just feeling like there's going to be a moment where you're going to be able to to try these things or or, or, or make these things or
1: recover yeah that someone things. will find that ingredient at some point some somewhere along either the black market or someone from a farm right yeah <laughs> it was
2: it was actually something that i always had to remember to ask because people would give me these recipes and then they would get to the end and i say okay that's that's all that's that's you've given me everything and they said yeah and they say, "Oh, but if you find cinnamon and clove, and uh, if you can get fresh milk, use fresh milk." So yeah. I always had to remember to give for them to give me their wish list because right. so they have gotten they've they've gotten very used to just kind of you know doing without. And you mm-hmm. could you can taste the, how some of those some of the in the recipes something that is like requires a lot of ingredients like a nharos con pollo, which is almost like you know paella, which it's a slow chicken and simmer. rice, right? Chicken and rice, a lot of different spices you can kind of see what, you know, what they kind of leave out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it, um, in your book, you um, you did mention that you would arrive at someone's house armed with a lot of ingredients that you didn't really want to stretch their resources when you would go to, to cook with them. So you would actually, you were very sensitive to this. and.
2: Well, I was I was very aware of it in my own family when whenever we would visit when we were able to visit our family, we didn't want to strain their resources. And even a family, the families who have support, especially from from the outside family who left and sends regular um, supplies and money and whatever, you know, whatever they have to, to share, they can do well. And to a certain extent you know they, they can they can have you know sufficient they can get enough of what they need but it's you can't take anything for granted mm. they never have extra even you see somebody who has you know is a professor or someone who's a doctor someone who you would think of as being able to be comfortable they, there's nothing. You know, they don't take anything for granted. There's nothing that they can kind of say like, "Oh yeah, well, there's there's plenty." And it's it was to me, it was it was hard to see just because I know how generous Cubans are, and they were very generous, and they were very generous with their time, and what they knew, and anything that they had to offer, they were going to give it to me. And that it was it was very much the same in Miami. Whatever you asked for, they were going to want to give it to you. They were going to try and give it to you. <laughs> It's just very limited, and I didn't want to put them in that position. So if I could find a way of of bringing something or, you know, just having that conversation or just making it so that I was going to go to the market so it was easier for them. What or, can or, I get for you? Right? What can I get? What can I bring? And <laughs> right. Or going to a paladar was actually an ideal situation because the paladares are the private restaurants that are in theory, run from someone's home and where a family was was allowed to have a license to operate a small restaurant with with a lot of limitations, but they were able to do this that was kind of like the perfect thing because you you were you were set up they were you could be a paying customer you could have a conversation it was a home cook so it was it was the perfect kind of blend
1: it was a those were uh, the best yeah, subjects right. still they had to buy but um they had to buy retail they were not allowed these home restaurants were not allowed to buy from the wholesale food market
2: well that was on. one of the restrictions that that i heard from from everyone who i spoke to um they said well you know we don't have we don't have a wholesale market yet so if i you know buy you know the cost me x amount a pound it costs the same person that's going to the grocery store so i have to charge more for that so for a cuban who's on such a limited I mean, it's we say limited budget. This is beyond right, right. a limit. This is you know, just really trying to stretch every every resource they have. it's it's not you're not gonna you're not going to go to a restaurant. I always say it's like imagine like every restaurant is might as well be per se. you're not it's not something that you can do. It's something <laughs> right. that you know you might do on a special occasion, but it's not going to be part of your everyday. Um, Experience—it's not something recreational that you're going to do. So, in in a lot of the restaurants that I went to, they were strictly for the tourist market, and I think a lot of the things that they produced were always keeping in mind of trying to sell, trying to know that anything that they, any ingredients that they invested in, was going to have a return for them. Um, so, what I what I always did with any any chef was say, okay, beyond what they were cooking for for what they were doing in their restaurant or what was on the menu. I'd ask them, what did you remember cooking? What did your family teach you? What do you love of Cuban food? Trying to take it back to what their personal experience was because it wasn't always reflected in their menu. Some people could do it. Some people couldn't.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Depending on what kind of background they had. Depending well, on right. what kind of background. Right. Well, <clears throat> speaking of background, I want to take like three giant steps back. Okay. back um, and that is, first of all, to identify, well, we have to identify um, the, Cuban cuisine which, that's like identifying it's like nailing Jello to a wall identifying (laughs) Cuba and you know, well there were the native um, uh, population that were there, the Taino the the Arawaks and the the Indians but then there was such an influx of of um, cultures the Spanish obviously Mm -hmm. the Portuguese, the the, um, Caribbean influences, I mean Africa is a big influence and That all forms Cuba. And then there was some Chinese influence, maybe some French. There was French.
2: There was, was, you know, there was a port.
1: So it's, yeah, it's quite, you know, quite an amalgamation of, uh, or amalgam of of cultures and flavors and cuisines. Um, But as you have pointed out in, in past writings, too, much of the Cuban cuisine is made up of some of these pre-Columbian ancient um, ingredients, the tubers. In fact, the tubers that still are difficult to find, even in you know New York, where you think you can find everything, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, talk about some of these original ingredients that sort of separate. We all, we tend to lump, um, I think, Cuban cuisine in with all the the Latino cuisines mm-hmm. that that you know we think okay, rice and beans, plantains, you know all all these you know these things tell me for you what you've discovered really separates and makes the Cuban cuisine unique what what are the f- flavors um, stand out as being unique to Cuba
2: what I love about cube what I love of Cuban food um, it's and it does set it apart a little bit from other what we think of as as other of Latin food or say specifically like Mexican food or Central American is that there's it's a there's it's a, it's very simple. There's it's very much focused on the ingredients. I think maybe it's because you don't want to sit there, you know, over a stove trying a lot mm. of different things in that kind of like heat and humidity. It can be very oppressive. So it was very much about just having these tubers, these vegetables, these fruits, these spices that we would put together very quickly, and then you walk away from it, and then you let it simmer for a long time. (laughs) So it's very much about, uh, about the technique. It's about kind of keeping an eye on things and watching for things to happen. If that's a simple plate of black beans, to me what sets us apart is the black beans. It's very much about the texture. It's just watching it. It's it starts with a very simple base of the sofrito, which you know I think it's it's very similar to the Cajun Trinity, mm-hmm. um, except for us, it's the bell pepper, the onion. And the garlic, and they would always. A lot of cooks would give me that as like, well, you do your seasonings. Like they wouldn't even specify that as like a separate in, a separate ingredient. They would like if say, you don't know
1: that, you don't. Yeah,
2: you just say like sofrito. <laughs> like that was kind of like its own its own thing, like salt and pepper. So I think that's the basis of of so many of our dishes. When I think about the the testing period for this book, it's like I'm always imagining myself grabbing that bell pepper because I I must have chopped. I must have gone through every bell pepper in New York at one point. So I think that's always that's always kind of like the key it comes back to. And then, you know, you used you to start building the dish and it's about you. You engage with it in a different way because it's like the black beans. You're you're, you're simmering them with that initial sofrito and and the bay leaves, and then you kind of have these. You're just watching it to kind of go to that point where it just gets that little bit muddy and it just starts to thicken. So you engage with it in a different way. Cream, it's, it's, creaminess. yeah. It just, just becomes that little bit just like it just thickens. It just just velvety. It's yeah. it's wonderful. And so you, you you're watching it, and it's about the technique, and it's about it's not about throwing a lot of different spices. Or a long list of, of 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 chiles, or which are wonderful. I, I love them in in Mexican food, but it's not necessarily there's not the complexity that you have in Mexican food. But in by the in the to the other extreme, I love the simplicity of it because the ingredients are really shine through, and it's really about finding the best possible product. It's about finding. You know, finding those those tubers and finding the yuca and the malanga and 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 putting it all together and every every one of it kind of you add it into the pot and it kind of does it does its work and it it melts in and it, it it deepens the flavor. But it's 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 a very it's a very limited repertoire. But I think it's it's wonderful for for being that. And I think you know because we have all of these influences, we're very focused on like what you what what the ingredients are as far as like what people are bringing in. Mm. So the Spanish... You know, it's very much like, you know, if you had like the Spanish chorizos and how they were made, it was very, it was, it was, it was this kind of like fussiness over like what, what the quality of what you were using that I really, I think in a way it's almost, it seemed like something I learned with my grandparents, but it's kind of had its own comeback where you really pay attention to where things are coming from and, Mm -hmm. and where you're getting it. So I think that to me, that's what, to me, that's what sets apart Cuban cooking is just the kind of engagement you have with it, because you can't, you know, you can't walk away from it, you can't cover it up it's very or or, i mean you you, you're not i I said the opposite but you know you can't just not pay attention to what's going on you can't hide it exactly (laughs) um so in that sense that's what i love about cuban food and again it's it's all of these different ingredients that kind of like come come together and they play and
1: well we're going to talk about some of these the origins of some of these influences um when we come back from a short break so don't go away thanks
2: Listening to Cryin' Blues by the California Honey Drops. This is a Taste of the Past on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
0: Network.org. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app, the sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Okay,
1: we are back, and I'm speaking with Anna Sofia Palais, talking about Cuban cuisine. And, you know, um, Anna, trying to, as we try to trace the history and, and um, the uniqueness of Cuban cuisine... Um, Mariselle Priscilla has done obviously so much mm-hmm. research and work in this too, and she wrote a wonderful introduction for you in this. She did; it was oh, beautiful, incredible. Yeah, um, but um, both you and she talk about how it's very difficult because so many, so much of the technique, as you described, so many of the recipes um, are really not written down, and that they are passed; they say within families. So there are are things that are you know, original or indigenous to particular families, particular regions. Mm-hmm. And they're not really written down and shared, you know, but the, the, the very old ones are not, there was no codified um, language of the cuisine, if you will, other than the sofrito, as you, <laughs> <laughs> as you mentioned. Um, and I wonder if you can, is what can we trick? Can we try to trace? You say that you keep coming back to Creole, um, flavors that ring out to you that to you um, you know are are so totally unique to, to Cuban cuisine
2: oh I think we talked we talked about the sofrito which I think is very much like the savory base um, and I think one of the things that I love and El Lourdes Castro who's one of our contributors yeah,
1: she's great. Is a wonderful
2: yeah. chef um, and based in New York also from Miami she said something I really love what she said she said you know you always think of C- Cuban food and, and Latin food in general as being very heavy But especially in Cuban food, you have so many citrus marinades, and you have the sour oranges, and you have the limes, and there's a brightness to it that I think gets over that gets overlooked, or people aren't aware of if they're not part of the process. And Mm -hmm. everything kind of gets these, you know, gets these marinades, and this last, you know, these last, you sprinkle lime on everything that, you know, (laughs) sweet, savory. It's just it kind of brings everything to life in a really lovely way. And I think we always have that little bit of sweetness too. I think even like you know we're talking about the black beans, the last thing you do is you give that little teaspoon of sugar at the end um so i think even or or picadillo you always have raisins or you have some some sweet element that plays off of the olives and the and the and the more the savory sofrito so i think those those three things um always come together in so many different dishes or even if it's just because we have these braises that cook forever they always caramelize in a certain way you always want to get it to that point where it just becomes that 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 bit rich and and there's that little that turns the corner to, to being sweet that I think we, we love and and we, we find a, a way of bringing those three elements into everything. It's always has to be the sweet, sour, and and, and the savory. So it's it, it's you want to kind of
1: hit all your points. Yeah, um, the um, one thing that we didn't talk we talked you know a lot about the stews and those flavors, um, and of course. Beef being, you know, the chickens they can, they can raise maybe in a backyard if they have a piece of, a mm-hmm. you know, little patch. Um, beef is difficult. Pork. Their, pork has, has um, played a big role in the newer cuisine, but it was always a big part of it. Who, can you somehow, you know, for us, trace um, some of the influences by the ingredients that they brought with them?
2: Well, I think pork came from, as it was something livestock came, that, that came with Spain. Um, and that that was also the cattle, like that. That's what they brought, and they introduced that into what was what was indigenous. Was a lot of these tropical um, vegetables we talked about, the yucca, corn. A lot of the fruits, really the new world, foods. Yeah, new world, yeah, these new world foods that you know we can't imagine <laughs> without you know going without that. But the corn, potato, mm-hmm. it all it all started here. So, and they introduced a lot of a lot of these different cuts, the tasajo, which is a you know a dried cured cured beef a way of treating it was obviously making that making that voyage from Spain it was a way of treating these preserving um, what they were using um, and it was very much about having these long work days and having just really you know the the agriculture that was going on and 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 it was it was it was a lot of very hearty cuts of meat and and vegetables that were coming together and then of course Africa was so important um, what you know with with that introduction of of that you know slave labor which is it's it's it was you know what they brought with them um something that i found that was very interesting they brought the plantains okra um and some of these other things that you think of as so tropical that you think of them as being because they work so well in the tropics
1: and they just I think of them always being part of that culture Yeah right? they all
2: flow together so beautifully but it's a part of this very difficult um process of that was happening at at the time
1: of this this discovery Yeah and sugar with its dark history I it's, mean that that yeah, plays a so big that plays a huge role in the cuisine as well it's and, you know cut
2: it was part of the cuisine and it was just having to cut the sugar and having to that that manufacturing was just that a lot of that had to do with having these incredibly heavy meals
1: in the middle of the day and then going back to you know going back to those fields it's 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 hard work yeah. I can't well that and that was the culture um much like other countries throughout um, Europe or Southern Europe. Taking that siesta, having the the family coming together.
2: Well, that's something having- when they would talk about these midday meals. They just seemed so elaborate to me. I couldn't imagine taking that much time to, to to create these meals every single day. And they said, "Well, you had your your husband would come home. Your ch- all of your children would come home from school to have that meal at home. Your neighbors might come. Who, who, somebody who was working with your husband might go go to your home instead of you know." So it was. It would always become these kind these big extended um, affairs. Um, so I think especially when you talk about you know having the the pot of beans, you can always add a little bit more water. You can mm-hmm. always throw a few more vegetables in. There was always Some way of 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 stretching those those meals to whoever might might turn up,
1: and then a nap in the in the noonday sun, right? A nap,
2: (laughs) yeah, and then everyone back to school, back to work, right?
1: Right. Um, What we haven't talked about are the importance of um, the the breads and the pastries. And that there's so much, uh, fr- I guess fried foods are is what, I, what I'm thinking a lot.
2: Well, the fried foods, I think it's something that it always comes at the end. To me, it's almost when you talk about memory, if I hear that snap of oil, it's always when we're about to eat. Because I was always like the last. So you could hear that sound from the kitchen and you knew that lunch was almost ready or dinner was almost ready. Um, and it makes sense. I think, you know, we talked, I talked about having these like stews that you have to kind of watch, but then you kind of have to take your time away from because it was very hot. The fried foods they were they're just such good fryers they were they just know how to get that oil hot enough so it doesn't get soaked it doesn't get heavy and all of these vegetables really lend themselves well to just kind of like of you know f- being quickly fried and and when you talk about the plantains it's just you can't when you have I, it's something that i i think i've i've Living in New York after growing up in Miami, not necessarily having like central air, these kind of very acclimated um, living situations. When I buy fruit or when I buy vegetables, it, they go, they ripen so quickly and they get it, they get it away from you. And I think in some ways that's where this cuisine comes from because you have a plantain, it gets to the point where it just it blackens and you you need to cook it and you, you don't want it to go to waste. So it's a way of, of always kind of staying ahead. If you can quickly fry something, it's a way of conserving that food and and you know stretching stretching what what you have. Available to you.
1: Now, and what about cooking oil? The fat? I mean, I would imagine that um, cooking fuel and cooking fats were something that probably were in scarce supply during the restrictions. What So what uh, what type of oil would they be, and, and would they be f- flying, frying in lard a lot? or? I think ideally
2: they would fry in lard. I think lard is something that's being revisited or yes. rediscovered in a lot healthy, of different a ways. A healthy
1: fat after all. They <laughs>
2: will swear. I think that's something that would be like, you know, lard, you know, my grandmother had lard every day, and she lived to be 150 <laughs> years old. So I think it's something that they're very, it, there's, there's a reason that it was, it was an effective it was something that they could, they could use. So I, I think that's something you're probably going to see more in the country. I think in, in the city, what I saw mostly was like pretty, you know, a lot of blended oils, a lot of degraded oils, reusing kind of very bland cooking oils. Mm-hmm. Olive oil was a, at a premium, but that is something that, you know, because of the Spanish influence, I think we always you always want to have some. Olive oil is, a, is an important part of what we do for some of the, like the lighter frying or mm-hmm. the sautéing or so finishing or something
1: finishing. Yeah, so
2: I think that was something that they they've held on to. So it's it's it wasn't great. Like a lot, you can definitely tell a lot of the quality. Sometimes what you had in the city was was inferior just from what the the, the ingredients were, what was being used. A lot of used a lot of soy sauce, a lot of soy in everything. So when you got to the country, even though the situation in the country is even more difficult as far as having the variety of, of ingredients that you might have in the city. The quality was sometimes a little bit better because they had a direct contact with what they were growing or what they were raising. Hmm. So it was it was it was probably much more limited in the country, but what you had was was better. Well I would be
1: remiss if I did not <clears throat> bring up the topic of sandwiches. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um And you know, as you mentioned, the the noonday meal was, was the big the big spread. For, you know for as part of their past culture and mm-hmm. um, probably in today's society it's a little more catching here you know. and there yes. yeah catch as you can go but I would imagine the evening meal then was a little lighter maybe that went you know where did the where did the sandwiches play in the sandwiches when they talk about having them in Cuba were something that was very is very casual
2: it was something if you went out if you were out dancing you would have a sandwich on your way home and it's still something that we do like a wedding you have you you know you'll be at a wedding and you're eating and you're drinking and and you, you still finish it with a sandwich or any kind of sporting event, any kind of. You go to a show, you go to the theater, you go to a concert. You you end it with a sandwich. So it's still very much part of that nightlife of just, just kind of like that last place you hit before before you go home. Um, the sandwiches actually they're very controversial because they they came about at a time early 19th century or early 20th century where the cigar rollers, um, the cigar industry was bringing workers back and forth to South Florida. It was almost like a commuter. Um, a commuter town um, mm-hmm. having these these cigar rollers in in Key West and Key West, eventually right. they moved up to Tampa. <laughs> so this sandwich that they brought with them, there's there's a, there's a controversy about whether or not they whether they originated in, in in South Florida or they originated in Cuba. But it was really it's an interesting it's 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 kind of a it's a, a fake controversy in the sense that at that time. There was such a large Cuban presence in South Florida because of the cigar industry that the mayor was Cuban. Everyone was Cuban. So it was almost like, you know, it was a back and forth. So it was very fluid at that time as, you know, it is now in, in a sense. So, so it's hard to pinpoint exactly where, where it started. Um, I think it's definitely when we start talking, when we start calling it a Cuban sandwich and when you start pressing it. And those those kinds of things definitely happen in, in Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, but the sandwich, the ham and cheese sandwich, that was that was very cute, and that was a, that was something that we've we've always done well, and we've always lo- absolutely loved it and obsessed over it, and love making them and talking about them
1: and arguing about who makes it better. So. Well, and then who's the purest? I mean, do you use fresh ham that's been slow braised, or do you use cured ham and cheese? I mean, there the varieties abound. It's know? so hard to it's so easy to do, and it's so hard to do well.
2: And I think there 's a lot of corners, so I think a lot of people kind of like bristle if like they feel like somebody 's you know cheating a little bit and I think definitely when you talk about the you know the, the the history of it, if you have salami in it, if you have Genoa salami that was something that because a lot of the workers weren 't just Cuban there was some, there was a, a large Italian um, there's a lot of Italian immigration, so their their Tampa Guano has, has salami in it, but it's not necessarily inauthentic. It was just it was part
1: of this 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 process. This is just what you ate when you were. Okay. This is something that was popular with with this with this group. Well, one thing you'll get to know about me is that I I try to strike the word authentic from any talk of cuisine because it, it's it's a it's it's a pretty. Gray area, you know, yeah, it's just, it's, the, it, can't be defined. If it's good, it's good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and and to finish up that discussion in talking about the sandwich, perhaps starting in, in Florida um, before the show, you and I were speaking about um, Cuban American cuisine because we know that so many uh, different immigrants would arrive on the shores of America and find all oh, this, you know, abundance of food at their at their um, ready, and they would adapt their own recipes to include an abundance of meat Mm -hmm. or, you know, cheeses and and sauces and varieties. We know from Italy, there's a a recognized now Italo-American cuisine, its own cuisine, which is so different from what one would find in in Italy. And in fact, some of the dishes have transferred back. Do you find this with Cuban cuisine as well? Is there a Cuban-American cuisine, things that have sort of morphed into their own dish? I think there is. I think the... There's two two big events. Like you said,
2: the portions. You know, we always joke that in in Cuban restaurants, a lot of times they would have a placement with a map of Cuba on it. And then you have like you would get like a, a breaded steak that was the size of Cuba. Like it was always <laughs> like the portions were always you were, you were always eating an island basically. <laughs> you no, know, regardless of what you ordered, um, I think the inter- really interesting thing that it's something that I love about going to Miami is that so much of the influence has been shaped by having other Latin American nationalities that, that they live alongside each other in Miami. So in that sense, and it's something that when I went to Cuba. Because they don't have as they don't have free access to the internet, they don't have access to they they can't travel as easily. Cuban food has been very become very static, um, and it's been very much about holding on. In Miami, because the Cuban food is it's it's easier to kind it's it's easier to 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 make and to produce and and to you can make a lot of different choices and you have all of these other influences. You can kind of see it evolving a little bit. Um, they, you know, we don't usually add heat, but obviously, living in the United States, you're much more familiar with Mexican food or different. So you can add a little bit of spice. You can add different different flavors to it. Or Peruvian is very popular in Miami. Mm-hmm. So I think some of the ceviches, or maybe some of like the fishes, the things that we would marinate in citrus that would cook them a little bit. You can kind of see the connection to ceviche, and people can have a little bit of fun with that. So I think, in that sense, I don't see it as as becoming a feature so much as they see it evolving with other influences and it having the opportunity to kind of to play with different things and not have it be this very static thing because that's that's to me that was what Cuban food always was. It was always an island. It was always a lot of these countries coming in and out like we talked about the French and the Chinese and the Spanish and the African and and, and, and the Caribbean. So to me that was always part of the process and I don't feel that there's any point where that should stop. Mm -hmm. There's no reason why we should call it. Okay, 1959, (laughs) nobody move. So I think in that sense, I really love, and I'm seeing a lot of chefs in Miami now, young chefs that are coming up, that they very much have gone back to a very traditional Cuban food that they had in the home, which was in some ways more complex than what you would have at more casual eateries and they're they're having fun with it and they're very true to what that repertoire is you're going to get your you're going to get your beans you're going to get your your braised meats you're going to have the same flavor profile but then they, they play with it and they have they travel and they can kind of try different things and they have different people that they're working with and you have Colombians and Mexicans and Brazilians and Peruvians and
1: everybody's living alongside each other so they can they can see what what works and what doesn't work uh, and rice of course we did talk i mean the african influence in the and the rice and Rice becoming just part of that of the cuisine.
2: Well, I I love I love going to Chinatown because I always when I see those like just enormous bags of rice and walls Mm -hmm. full of rice cookers, I feel like I'm home. It's just I think they're the only ones who (laughs) who love it the way we do. So I, I think rice is always to me it's always the anchor, and those are actually my favorite dishes. I think a lot of people there's something kind of very you know, there's a one-upmanship to the pork dishes and definitely the roast pork that we make and every year at Christmas, it's always trying to get that better. And all the men's kind of standing around and arguing about how they marinated it and how they pick the pig and all of this stuff. But to me, I love the rice dishes. I think there's a delicacy to them that I really love and I love making them. And I love that way everything cooks together and they're very much about family and everybody, you know, just having this one pot, one dish meal that everybody enjoys. And I, that those, the rice dishes to me are, there's, those are the ones that I'm the most nostalgic for, that I love making, that if I have anybody coming to my home that I want to show, have them a, a real Cuban, what I think of as a true Cuban meal, it's usually one of those atros con pollo or roson calamares, or one of, one of those dishes. I, I love making
1: those. Well, it's, it certainly has whetted my appetite. <laughs> <laughs> Good. And you can find a lot of these wonderful recipes in Anna's book, The Cuban Table, A Celebration of Food, Flavors, and History. Anna, thank you so much for sharing all your information with me today. It's thank
2: been, you for having me. This this, I feel that we
1: could just keep talking about all these different cuisines I, and cultures because there's so good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so many of them, <laughs> you're gonna right. have to cut me off. Right. Uh, Anna Anna Sofia Palais, thank you. And thank you for listening to A Taste of the Past. I'm your thank host, you. Linda Palacio. <laughs>